we'll be exploring what it takes to prepare for law school while you're here at Baylor, as well as to how to best make use of the resources that we have here for you. As we progress, we'll be looking at things like personal statements, uh, law school resumes, law school selection, and also how to best prepare for the LSAT. But the underlying aim of the podcast is to expose you to the lives of real lawyers across a variety of careers and practice areas and from across the country. Now, fidelity, bravery, and integrity He's a great character traits, uh, but it's also the ethos that undergirds the organization from which our guest today comes from, Special Agent Edward Duffer. Uh, Eddie joined the FBI in 1988. Uh, he's been with them in a variety of capacities. He served as a, spe- as a SWAT operator. Uh, you've presented at a number of venues about international and domestic terrorism, and you've been in places like DC, Reno, and most recently in, in Austin. Eddie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about why you chose Baylor in the first place. Um, at the time, uh, you can see from uh, uh, your uh, statement about the, the, the timeline, it's been a few years. Uh, <laughs> Baylor was a different place. Uh, the world was a different place. And Baylor at the time had what they called the 3-3 three and three program. So about my junior or senior year when I was in high school, I went to high school down in a little community just south of Houston, uh, I was looking for a career in law, and so um, I saw and became aware of Baylor having this three three and three program, which in essence meant that after three years in undergraduate, you could put in for law school. So it cut down on the time and the expense yeah. of getting through the program. And I, uh, by my junior or senior year in high school, kind of knew that uh, being in law was something I wanted to be involved with, and I knew that that program would particularly suit uh, my needs to uh, accomplish that. Were you involved uh, in pre-law activities when you hear like things like pre-law society or anything like that? No, no, no I really wasn't. It wasn't, uh, at the time, I'm sure those existed, uh, but uh, it just, uh, you just kind of knew that you went through, got your degree, and kept your GPS, GPA up, got your LSAT, and got into law school. And so I, I literally remember that's what I did. So it was kind of a, in a, in a sense, a naive way of going through it, but it was the path I chose, and I just <laughs> stuck with it. <laughs> do, do you wish you'd maybe explored it a little bit more before you went into it? Yes. I do wish I would have had uh, what you guys now offer is this program that kind of educated me as to what to expect once I hit law school and how I should better prepare for it. It was uh, kind of a uh, shooting in the dark at the <laughs> time. And so that's, you know, but I was willing to do that as uh, other folks were, and uh, so that's kind of the program I came through. Did you feel ready for law school when you uh, went there? Because it's a step up. Yes. Uh, I felt ready for law school until my first year of law school. <laughs> <laughs> so my first year of law school uh, was a rough time for me adjusting from undergraduate to learning the process. And I think a lot of that had to do with, uh, one, is just I was young and had not had a lot of life experience. And so everything that I heard in law school from contracts, it was all brand new terminology for me. And mm. as you know, law school and practice of law is about terminology and understanding what those uh, phrases and words mean. And so it took me a while to understand that and also understand the system of studying for law. So my first year was a wake-up call. Uh, it wasn't for a lack of trying, but I, I took a beating. <laughs> but it, it was a good character building, and I, 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 I hung on, and I'm glad I kind of then went into my second and third year and I kind of knew what, what was going on and got a better a grip on it and uh, uh, did, did well. Do you have some maybe good memories and less than ideal memories of law school? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think my bad memory in a very broad brush is my first year. It just, it just uh, kicked my backside, for yeah. lack of a better way to describe it. And it was just frustrating because I'd come from 
you know, like most people that have made it in law school, you've come from a life of success. I had succeeded in law in uh, high school. I succeeded in Baylor undergraduate. And so you kind of expect that. And so just, uh, again, learning the process and learning the system was difficult, but uh, I just kind of worked through it. It would have been helpful to have somebody uh, like the program that you guys offer that says, hey, this is kind of what you can expect. And so I would have appreciated that. I learned through the school of hard knocks, for lack of a better way to describe <laughs> it. My best memory was simply in law school is, is kind of entering my second year because then uh, I, I started understanding uh, what the practice of law was about, uh, the terminology, if you will, and uh, what was going to be required of me. I I'd, I'd clerked, obviously, between my first and second year, and that clerkship had actually prepared me for that as well. It kind of told me what, how this translates into real life to a degree. And so my second year of law school was probably my best memory. And then you also also start making friends more so with these people you've been you know stuck with for about <laughs> a year yeah. prior, and you start to form bonds and become a cohesive unit as a class because you're there together in a hard situation for three years. And I think that helped me from a character standpoint. And now I've got friends that became lifelong friends of mine from that experience. So what was the progression from law school to the FBI? Was it something you'd always been interested in in doing post-law school or is it one of those things that you didn't really um, explore or investigate until you were actually in law school? Uh, it was when I actually was in law school. Uh, short story is that when I was in my clerkship between my first year and my second year, I worked for a criminal defense firm, ironically enough. <laughs> and... Uh, on the staff was another clerk, and his dad was an FBI agent there in Houston. That's where I was clerking. And that young man told me, regaled me with stories that his dad had. And I began to think, well, that's a possibility as well. And by my third year, when most of us are, you know, looking for employment beyond law school, uh, I was interviewing with some law firms, also considered uh, pursuing JAG mm -hmm. with uh, one of the military branches. And I, I started the process of going through the FBI uh, background interview process, which can be lengthy at times. And so I thought, well, whatever shakes out, shakes out at the end of this. And uh, as I went through my third year of law school, it's the FBI uh, thing was looking like it was going to be a real possibility. And I think at that point in time, I thought to myself, well, I think this is probably the path I'm going to end up taking. So it was nothing I had ever dreamed of becoming. It was nothing I'd ever pursued. Uh, it's just kind of the way, you know, providentially God set it up for me and kind of directed me that way. And uh, it, I, again, kind of fell into it, for lack of a better way to describe it. I mean, it has a mystique to it. When people think of, you know, kind of exciting roles, being an FBI agent has this allure to it. Did you, uh, was that the case when you were coming through as well? Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was funny, amongst the, even the other law students, uh, they were like, oh, you're going to be that. And there was that mystique, and I was, I was of course, uh, uh, promulgating that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> this is incredibly mystique. I'll, I'll be you know, I'll traveling all over the world living the life of James Bond. And, uh, and so there is that mystique, and that was an allure to it as well. But as I, I, as I went through the process, I also was getting educated about what the Bureau really did. Yeah. and what my life as a special agent, which is the title that we have, would be. And the more I thought about that and the law enforcement component of it, the more excited I became. And I think in my third year it was dawning on me that that was the role I was more uh, suited for than even practicing law. Mm -hmm. And so I think by my third year I was thinking, well, I really need to give this law enforcement a shot because I think this is – something that will, will really fit me well. Was it the investigative element of it? Yeah, it was. It was that. Uh, I, I call it being on the front, front line. In other words, I knew because another job possibility in my third year of law school was prosecutor's office. Mm -hmm. That appealed to me. The, the whole overall thing was just basically uh, uh, catching bad guys <laughs> in its most simplistic form yeah. and, and uh, holding people accountable for doing basically horrible things in our society. That appealed to me. And so the prosecutor job was appealing because it would have satisfied that need. But then I also thought to myself, you know, I'd rather be the guy that actually puts the cuffs on them, puts the case together and goes out and uh, 
is the is the face of justice that these guys, these bad guys, and these bad gals meet. Mm-hmm. And that really had an appeal to me. And so that kind of drove me forward into the FBI as opposed to pursuing uh, prosecu- you know, prosecutor's office or th- things of that sort. So I remember hearing uh, a rumor that when J. Edgar Hoover was overseeing the FBI, that he had this rule of only recruiting accountants and attorneys. And I know that over time that's changed, and the FBI is obviously um, looking for diverse agents from demographic backgrounds, but also their academic background. Is having a law degree an advantage in terms of being recruited to the FBI, if for uh, those who might be interested in following a path like your own? Yes, sir. And I'll tell you my own personal path, so, and it'll kind of explain it a little bit. It is advantageous in a way, and I'll tell you that in a second. I want to give you a broader brush of how the Bureau uh, does recruiting. They do recruit from a diverse uh, 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 section of the United States population. They want people that have language skills. They want people from all kinds of different backgrounds because that serves the FBI well. It gives us experts in matters that we would otherwise not have experts in. Mm. Uh, One of the ways that being an attorney or a CPA for that matter is advantageous is one, it actually provides you an opportunity to get into the FBI earlier in your life than would otherwise be available. For instance, when I came in, I was uh, graduated from uh, uh, law school when I was 24. I got in when I was 24 to the Bureau. Most agents that come in, come in when they're about 29 or 30. So it kind of gave me a a five-year bump into this career, if you will. And uh, so that was one advantage. And the reason it did that is because the Bureau recruits, generally speaking, uh, from these various populations. And one of the populations is the attorney population. It's a small percentage of the special agent population now. I would would estimate only about 10% of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But that meant that when I was competing for the job, because you're competing on a national scale, for these jobs with the FBI, I was only competing against other attorneys for the job. And so it, it narrows down the pool. I'm not competing against special forces guys who's coming out of the military. I'm not, I'm not competing against uh, an investigator from the Baltimore Police Department or something of that sort. So th- that helped quite a bit. So in those two arenas, both age-wise and um, just narrowing the pool of people I'm competing against, I think it was helpful. If, if you applied and you didn't get in, is it worth going around again? Like, do people apply multiple times before they're finally accepted? Yes, uh, quite a few people. I was fortunate. Uh, I started my third year of law school and basically uh, went through that following summer, which had been the summer of 87, and I was uh, took the bar here in Texas, and, uh, and then after that took a little vacation to a place that you're quite familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and I actually was, I, I, at that time, there was no such thing as cell phones. I think that dates me a little bit. <laughs> but I called my dad from a, a, a payphone in uh, southern Australia, and he goes, hey, just so you know, the FBI just called. You have a job. You need to be back here by November. <laughs> so I left the, the land down under yep. and uh, came on back and started my, my class uh, there with the FBI. And so uh, I, I'm not sure I answered your question specifically, uh, but... Uh, well, I, th- one of the, I guess one of the things I didn't want to ask is I know for special agents, they usually require you to have three years of professional experience. Correct. Is that a little different if you go to law school? It is. And I think the, the thing is, is uh, the, they consider the experience of going to law school. That at, professional at, experience. professional yeah. experience, exactly. And I think they treat CPAs in the same manner. And so, again, those are the two degrees that they, they don't require that three years of professional experience. Gotcha. So, which is, again... A good and bad thing. I got in really young, and so I was really young when I got in the FBI. Fortunately for me, I had a lot of great mentors that took care of me and mentored me through those young years. Uh-huh. And uh, But at the same time, that gave me five or six more years of, of work experience with the FBI. I think it's helpful for our listeners to remember that there are different career paths within the FBI. The special agent route is not the only route. That is correct. So if someone was to go and get some, say they had some language skills, and they went and worked for the FBI in a non-special agent capacity. Is that going to be an advantage to them if they then decide to transition across the special agent? It is. Yeah. And we have a lot of people that come in under what I would, uh, what is called our professional staff. And that professional staff can be anything from an administrative assistant to an IT person to a language interpreter. 
um, uh, to uh, analysts. We have people that uh, do uh, analysis. And a lot of those people will decide later in their careers, I'd also like to get into the position of a special agent. So the nice thing now is they, they've got a flavor for the FBI. Mm. They've got a feel for it. They speak they, the language. They, they speak the language, and, yeah. so they, and they, you know, they have an inside track, if you will, because they know us. And so then they'll put in, a lot of them get into uh, that position as well. Presumably the process is a little faster too because they've already done background checks and, and all that kind of thing. It is, yes, yeah. because you have to have a background de- check done even if you're going to be a janitor for the FBI. Anything yeah. you're going to be, you're going to have a background check done. So, so once you get into the, the program, uh, you go through the background information. You're obviously doing a lot of physical training and getting ready, and then you get to Quantico. Correct. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what you can expect? How, like how, long, uh, how long are you going to be in Quantico completing that training? Right. As a special agent, uh, the program I now, I believe, is 20 weeks long. And it consists uh, basically three major parts. Uh, one is education. I'll call it that. It's the classroom stuff. It is learning about the law. It is learning about investigations and all the peripheral things that come with that. The second area is firearms. We, by trade, are law enforcement officers. So it's a dangerous job. We carry firearms. And so part of the process is being trained. If you've never even shot a gun, they will teach you how to shoot one. And you will be become uh, not proficient proficient, but you'll become a beginner proficient, I guess is the best way to say mm-hmm. it, on using a handgun uh, and some of the long guns that uh, the FBI carries as part of their law enforcement function. The third area is defensive tactics or tactics. In other words, learning how to safely arrest somebody, handcuff somebody, planning arrest, planning uh, search warrants, and things of that sort. So that all is part, and there's a lot of other uh, things that teach you how to drive, <laughs> believe it or not, for in emergency situations, yeah. and all kinds of other experiences that you have as an FBI uh, a cadet is, is the term I'm using, but uh, basically preparing to become an FBI agent. And that's about a 20-week process that you go through back at the academy in Quantico, Virginia. And I imagine a lot of that stuff is continuing, too, throughout the course of your career. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot depends on where you want to go with your career. Like if you want to go on SWAT, then, you know, you try out for SWAT, you get on SWAT, and then you're trained. You go through training programs, and you train routinely with a SWAT team. That's a, a different, uh, uh, basically a bumped-up level of tactics that uh, you have to kind of acquire as part of being that part of that team. And that's true for any of the other duties that you would assume as an FBI agent. And I, I had heard there's a, a thing at Quantico called Hogan's Alley, which is kind of like a, a movie set almost where they give you a real scenario that's actually been a case, and then you and your classmates will work through that scenario. Am I right in thinking you were the, one of the first classes to go through Hogan's Alley? I think so, because I, uh, I, you know, and I didn't know this until I actually went on a, a vacation two weeks ago with my wife and my kids because I wanted them to see uh, Quantico. Yeah. They had never seen it, and they'd never seen D.C., and so we went down to Quantico, and I showed them Hogan's Alley, and I read something on the board. It was started in the early 80s. So I was one of the first classes that went through it, and it is like a little mini town. I'd say it's about three blocks by four blocks, and it has everything you can think of from trailer, a trailer park to a bank to a, a movie theater. And it, the design of that is to prepare um, the, the new agents who are going through the uh, academy for real-life scenarios. So they'll go in there. They'll be presented with a scenario by the instructors, and they will go effect an arrest. They'll effect an investigation. And the people that play the witnesses, uh, the subjects, or the bad guys are all role players hired by the FBI to go in there and play out those roles. Yeah. So it makes for a more real-life scenario for these, uh, these uh, recruits that are coming in. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So when you finished uh, your training at Quantico, you then went to uh, D.C. and you were in the Alexandria office? Correct. Just for a short period of time, the FBI oftentimes has uh, what they call TDYs or short-term uh, assignments, mm-hmm. and there was a huge case going on there. It was a corruption case, and they needed a lot of people to assist with that case. So I was there only for a few months assisting with that case. And then it was out to Reno. It was out to Reno, yeah. yeah. That must have been an adjustment. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I've been raised in Texas. I didn't even know how to spell Reno, much less <laughs> didn't know anything about it. And actually, Reno is a branch office. The term that we use is resident agency. But every uh, major city serves as a field office. The field office out in Nevada, obviously, is Las Vegas. And so the branch office, out, one of the branch offices out of there was Reno. So I was originally assigned to Las Vegas, 
And then Las Vegas made a decision that we wanted to send up to send you up to Reno. So I went up to Reno and was there for 23 years. So wow, a lot longer than I anticipated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to hear a little bit about what a day, a regular day, looks like for you because you've been a SWAT operator, you've done um, terrorism work, you've worked with gangs and and violent crimes. What is what does a standard day look like? Do you have a small number of cases that you are focusing all your attention on, or are you spread out and about a, across a large portfolio? What are your hours like? Are you on shifts? Those kind of things. And the dynamics of that change all the time. And I guess that's one of the great things about the job or mm-hmm. the cool things about the job is you never know what's going to happen. And uh, I've always enjoyed that aspect of it. I've always enjoyed walking through the door, just thinking I have a plan for the day. Okay, today I'm just going to work on this part of my case and then uh, maybe do this or that. And then some, something uh, either literally blows up or something blows yeah. up and suddenly uh, it's go time. And so you, you go, go, go on, on a case that you didn't see coming or didn't anticipate. But to kind of answer, go back to your question, the, the dynamics of what you do on a daily basis depends on what you're working and how, what office you're working in. In essence, sometimes it is a desk job. I will be sitting there working on reports, working on uh, uh, analyzing my own cases um, all day long. Uh, my history was when I went to Reno, it's a small office. So there was only eight to 15 agents there uh, during the time period I was there. And so we covered the entire northern two-thirds of the state of Nevada. So anytime anybody got called out, the entire squad went out. Whereas now I've moved here to Austin, it's a smaller office. We have six to seven squads. I'm on a uh, international terrorism squad. And so that squad's uh, uh, work is, uh, the tempo's a little slower than it was in Reno. That's uh, probably a little bit better for me at this phase <laughs> in my life. It's, it's more measured, I guess, mm-hmm. for lack of a better. It, it can take off just like uh, anything else. But when I was working drugs and gangs, at the time I was a single guy, and my shift, uh, d- I worked with uh, local authorities, and I worked with the DEA. And sometimes my shift was through the nights. Yeah. You know, uh, whereas uh, here, this, this job, now that I have is more of a day job. I don't have a lot of the same collateral duties. Like I'm no longer on the SWAT team. I'm, I'm certified, but I'm no longer an active member of the SWAT team. And so that dynamic changes. You. I mean, you're going to go train for a certain uh, amount of time every month. You may get called out on missions that the rest of the agent population is not going to get called out on. So in Reno, for instance, I'll give you a, a, a quick example. If I, uh, I could get up, I could start working on a case. Back then I was working probably... Uh, gangs. I start working on a case and then I may get a call from our Las Vegas office and say, hey, on Thursday we're going to do a hit on Friday in LA. And so then I'd start planning for uh, getting permission to fly down to LA, meet my team there and do a hit on Friday. So then my day consisted of me getting up at 2.30 in the morning. We'd go out and do our search warrant, whatever we do. We'd finish and then I'd fly back to Reno. So that was more of a a, kind of what people envision as an exciting, whereas sometimes here, I'm just you know working through the day, doing things that uh, I need to do to address the cases. To answer your question about caseloads, caseloads can be one big case, but caseloads in some of the smaller offices, I had upwards of 50 cases at times. And you just kind of balance those cases, and what you do is you address those cases as the need for the case came up. So, for instance, a trial comes up, you're going to be you're going to be doing nothing but the trial prep for that case. So it's, it, does, it does sound like you, you can have a very um, unpredictable workload, but you can also choose offices and also areas that are more or less unpredictable. Yes, and, and that, that, you know, again, that coming here, uh, it was a bigger office. I knew that my workload would be more manageable. Mm-hmm. And Reno was kind of hectic. Uh, by the time I moved here, uh, my boys were in uh, uh, grade school, upper grade school, and, and my wife had probably grown tired of the lifestyle, <laughs> the, the, the quicker lifestyle I described a yeah. while, and so I decided to just stay with the IT squad, and it's worked IT out. IT being? Uh, international terrorism, yeah. I'm sorry. And uh, it had worked out uh, to be kind of paced. That being said, if you recall from uh, the news, just back in March, we had the serial bomber there in Austin. So suddenly it went from uh, a paced, measured day to uh, working straight through until that case was resolved uh, that, and that's that, that becomes hard you know your, your family has to adjust you're working all kinds of hours there's no end in sight until 
in this case, the guy was identified, and then uh, uh, he was uh, an attempt to apprehend him was uh, made, mm. and he committed suicide, and then th the case slowed down, obviously. Yeah. But you don't predict those things. That's both a good and bad thing. It, it kind of wreaks havoc on your family life for a while, and your family has to kind of roll with the punches. But at the same time, it's very satisfying. In that case, we did something, and we s probably saved numerous lives because we, law enforcement in general, the FBI, ATF, uh, APD, were involved in uh, stopping somebody who was doing something quite sinister. Yeah. You know, so. So, I mean, it does sound like if you if you are after a nine-to-five job, this is not this is not one you, you want to pursue. But at the same time, there's a reward there. Absolutely. And a motivation that it doesn't exist in a lot of careers. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about what a young agent can expect because I know one of your um, favorite TV shows is is called The Blacklist about this young <laughs> FBI agent who kind of gets thrown in at right. the deep end. Uh, when we look at law firms, for example, large law firms, if you go down that that road, you're less likely to be you know first or second seat on a trial for a number of years. As a young agent, can you expect to be thrown in from day one doing investigative work or is it normal that you would have, say, a 12-month period where you're kind of learning on the job in addition to what you've learned at Quantico? Uh, I think there is a, a lot of trial by fire. I mean, you can literally walk through the doors and be thrown into something uh, that re demands that you immediately pick up the pace. Generally speaking, yeah, your caseload is relatively light, uh -huh. but depending, again, where you land, it can be suddenly you can go into a caseload of 25 right off the bat. And those cases can be everything from bank robberies to fugitives to white-collar crime to narcotics to even possibly even a counterintelligence case. It just depends on where you go. But the expectation when you arrive is for you to kind of hit the ground running. Uh, you will be trained on the job. Uh, most new agents, I think, are on a probation period where they're having to kind of uh, do certain things and make sure that those certain things are done in the first two years of their career. And, uh, but uh, when an agent lands uh, on the ground, the rest of us usually look at him and go, let's go. Yeah, and you've got the title, so yeah, you've exactly. got the responsibility. As a matter of fact, a funny story is uh, in Reno, uh, we uh, had a kidnapping case, and it was a kidnapping case where a drug uh, dealer had kidnapped another drug dealer. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was a kidnapping yeah. case. And we had a brand new agent. He arrived the day that kidnapping was reported. Wow. And so we worked that case all day long till about 2 in the 2 a.m. the next morning when we actually found the victim, recovered him, and arrested the bad guys. And so this young agent's looking at me. His eyes are wide open because we've been running and gunning, so to speak, yeah, all yeah, day yeah. long. And I looked at him, and I, I go, it's like this every day here. <laughs> and, he, and he came back the next day. <laughs> he came back the next day. <laughs> Fortunately, it wasn't like that every day, but uh, that, that just gives you an idea of a new agent. You never know what's going to happen when you walk through the doors. So we, we talked uh, before we started recording a little bit about what the office layout is like. And so I'd like, to, I'd like for you to explain for us what your office setting is like and then maybe feed into how that plays into the investigative process. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, in essence, uh, uh, we don't have individual offices, so to speak, uh, and we have what we call a, a bullpen squad area. So we'll be in a pod setting. People are familiar with what pods are. Yeah. And they'll be in groups of four. They'll be in different groups of depending on which office you're in. And that, that concept has always been true as long as I've been in the Bureau. Mm. Sometimes, you know, like our supervisors, they'll have their own office and things of that sort. But if you are a, an agent or an analyst, we're generally thrown into groupings of squad pods and the, the the thought behind that is what we have found even though you don't have a lot of privacy uh it helps kind of fuel the investigative process a lot of people will overhear each other either talking on the phone having discussions with each other about their own particular case and what we found is uh and it's proven true time and time again another agent or another uh police officer that may be assigned to work uh, at our office will overhear you and say, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that person. I'm familiar with that case. And so it really feeds uh, the need for information to pass freely between all of us. And it's a very informal and I think somewhat effective way of us uh, resolving cases and uh, getting direction in cases and finding people that we need to talk to by just overhearing each other have conversations. You learn to block people out because, yeah. you know, you have to. 
But at the same time, you also ha- learn to have, have a, a keen ear to hear things uh, that may, may appertain to something that you are interested in or you can help another agent with, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, you talked a little bit, too, about uh, the caseload and what a day and the, the variety of one day from the next. Uh, you said that there was quite often periods where you were just behind the desk drafting documents, so on and so forth. Tell us a little bit about the actual job of investigating a case because we always see in television, you know, this kind of CIs or confidential informants playing a role. Is that a big part of what you actually do in in real life? And and, and if so, how does that work? Yeah, and to answer the latter part of your question first, uh, uh, we, we don't call them confidential informants anymore, but there are people that are willing to assist the FBI. And they're motivated by a wide variety of reasons, everywhere from uh, criminals who just need to get out of trouble mm-hmm. all the way up to professionals who just love America and want to do the right thing. And so the, uh, the, uh, uh, the types of people fall into those broad categories. And what you learn is... Uh, that all those people at the end of the day are people. And you learn how to deal with them, you learn to communicate with them, even if you have nothing in common with them at all. And oftentimes you'll find that you don't. I mean, I was raised in a Southern Baptist uh, household. My father was a music minister. Uh, I came from a history of those things. I went to a Christian school as an undergraduate. I went here to Bader. And then I'm meeting people that are basically uh, street smart people of all kinds of trades. And so what I learned to do is deal with those people, treat them respectfully, but nonetheless uh, uh, form uh, guarded but important relationships with a lot of those people in order to glean information. You know, and people in that field, confidential informants is the term that we'll use for our conversation here, uh, probably make up 95% of our work. Yeah. But for people, I mean, people envision us doing, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, secretive stuff and technical stuff, and that, that does occur, but most of our cases are fueled because somebody has come to us and said, hey, I want to help out for whatever reason, and you form a relationship with that person, a professional relationship, and you rely upon that person to provide you with information about the world that they are caught up in. So that becomes important, and that, that is a vital part of every investigation we do. Uh, to answer the first part of your question about investigations, every investigation is different. There are standard uh, techniques that we use, everything from uh, interviewing people, obviously, to uh, serving subpoenas, uh, serving search warrants, uh, 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 you know, arresting people and then getting them to roll, if you will, on other people, to sophisticated techniques, uh, wiretaps and things of that sort. So all that's part of, all of those required administrative and legal process. And so those take a lot of our time. Yeah. And, we, and so that uh, you'll, I'll spend a lot of time, if I'm doing preparing for a wiretap, that could take weeks, if not months, to prepare even to get that going. Wow. So that, that takes a lot of your time as yeah, well. Yeah, it's not over in 45 minutes. Nothing's no. over in 45 yeah. minutes ever. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Unless somebody robs a bank, uh, they get caught by the police, we come out and we kind of <laughs> help clean it up. That happens occasionally too. So. Do, do you find it amusing when you watch the, the media depiction? of FBI agents in television and those kind of things? Like how, how much of, what are some of the common misconceptions uh, uh, do you think oh, I, that one, are perpetuated? One thing that I think is funny is one, they're, they're portrayed by actors and so the characters are animated and usually kind of messed up, <laughs> human beings. And generally you have to be pretty even keeled to successfully go through this job. Yeah. And so that kind of uh, drama, if you will, even you know they'll show drama in the uh, the squad bay that, that that kind of stuff doesn't really occur. Yeah, we're just professional people doing a professional job, and cases don't get solved that quick, and uh, the action that occurs is not nearly the action that would occur in our everyday day to day life. So a lot I always say that 99% of uh, what the movies show is probably garbage, yeah. but it's entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> so do do you have to be secretive? about where you work or the kind of work you do or can you because I know some of the questions we've had from students is can can you tell your neighbors what you do uh, generally speaking yes yeah I mean there are people that are in undercover roles yeah for us and so they obviously can't but as just a special agent I mean I'm, I, my neighbors know who I am the people of my church know who I am the people in my social circles know who I am and you know it, what's interesting is uh, I we have found that that serves the greater good better because now they have somebody they can come to 
uh, and get educated about what we do. And because they get educated about what we do in law enforcement in general and then the FBI in particular, they, that citizen, whoever they are, becomes a partner with us. And I have a friendship with them, but they also know, okay, I can come talk to Eddie, I can trust Eddie. He's a real person. He's not this person that's depicted on TV. Yeah. And he's doing a good thing. So even when the FBI gets bad press, which we, we do, mm-hmm. and uh, then they go, you know what? I know the FBI because I know this agent. I know that he is a good person or she's a good person trying to do the right thing. Or I know someone who needs to speak to somebody like yourself, and then they can bring that exactly. relationship together. Exactly. Yeah. So I f- we found that, you know, that, that just uh, I found personally, just letting people know who you are it opens up all kinds of doors for you to be able to assist our community, you know, do your job. It, it sounds like it can be a job that's filled with excitement, but that it can also be fairly stressful. Uh, and there's a real reliance on your interpersonal skills. What advice would you have for folks who are either in law school now or who are uh, here at Baylor as undergraduates who are looking at this career path in terms of what they can be do? what they can be doing to develop the skill set that's going to help them succeed? Um, a couple things. One is uh, on a very uh, making decisions about your life period is important. Obviously, when you go through a background check with us, we're going to check what you have and have not done in your past. In order to become in the FBI, you're going to have to have kind of that straight and narrow lifestyle, for lack of a better way to describe it, and uh, that assist. I think uh, – just going through life prepares you in a great way. And it's one of those things that coming to the FBI, you either are or are not going to be a special agent. Mm-hmm. When people ask about coming into this job, they say, what, what courses should I take? What should I do? I always say, do whatever you're going to do in case you don't make it in. Because it's a highly competitive process to get in. And so I've known a lot of friends of mine that uh, tried to get in that I thought should have been in, but they didn't get in for whatever reason. And so they pursued those other careers. Um, so I think do whatever you're going to do, whatever that degree is that you want in order to go on in life if this special agent thing doesn't work out for you, I would say pursue. And then it's just, I think life just kind of prepares you for this. In my case, life was, I was raised by the FBI <laughs> in a way. And so I was raised by a group of uh, special agents out there in Reno that uh, basically took care of me and raised me over those first five years before you know, I kind of got, got it under my feet where I was one of the guys that could raise other special agents. You, uh, you talked about the straight and narrow kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about social media. And, and I know people have heard this before, but you, know, you can't say it too much. Can you tell us a little bit about what students should be doing and not doing? Yeah. on social media. And I'll just speak in very general terms. I mean, that social media was not part of my background coming through. Uh, it is very real part of theirs now. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that being said, all of us, you know, as agents, we have family, we have friends, uh, we have, uh, you know, some of us have Facebook, Facebook accounts and other accounts like that, but we're very circumspect about what we put up there. Yeah. Uh, as, as an agent, I, I virtually put nothing up there. I basically kind of track my old friends that I grew up with and see what's going on with their lives. But in preparation for that, keep in mind nowadays, uh, anything that you say or do will follow you into any career. That's not only true for the FBI, I think that's true for any career. Yeah. And it can cost you that career. Um, and when we get into our job, we now become testifiers. In other words, we have to stand before and take the oath that we're going to not lie under testimony. And we have to have credibility, obviously special agents. The people, the people of America expect that from us. And so uh, something you said 10 years ago on Facebook or Twitter may come up to haunt you. It may affect your credibility when you're, when you're now in this job as a special agent testifying to something. You made a statement that's perceived as you know, racist, bigotry, things of that sort when you were here at Baylor, and suddenly you're on there testifying on the stand uh, in a case, then a good defense attorney may be able to glean that up or his investigators. And so you may have to kind of eat that on the stand or it may uh, cost you your job or cost you for not even having this job. So it's very important uh, now that we have these uh, exposures to social media to be very, I guess the, the term is circumspect about what you do. You have a choice before you hit the send button yeah. about what you're about to say or you're about to like or about what you're about to dislike. You don't have to do anything. And so I think in a very general uh, answer to your question, you just got to be 
very contemplative about everything you're going to do. And as you know, that's just life. Yeah. The, the, the whys of us are circumspect about every single thing that comes out of our mouth. So, I can, I can just hear the enthusiasm in your voice when you talk about what you do. It, was there a point in your career where you're like, you just, you just realized this was the thing that was right for you? I think so. Uh, and you and I have discussed this, and, and I'll tell a, a kind of a somewhat funny story about that. But in essence, when I came out of law school, my, my thought was, I'm going to do this for about five years. Uh, I'll go wherever the Bureau sends me in those five years, and then I'll come, probably come back to Texas and practice law. It'd be a good resume buffer. That really was my thought process. I hadn't given up on the possibility of practicing law at that point in time. And, uh, and so about two or three years into my career, I was out there in Reno. Reno has coverage over what's known as Indian country, in other words, the Indian reservations. And oftentimes, there's a lot of violent crimes that occur out there. And more than one time, we were in standoffs with somebody who committed a violent crime. Well, about two or three years into my career, uh, we get called out at midnight to respond to an Indian re reservation, which is out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so we went out there. Um, and uh, to just to go back in time a little bit, when I was interviewing, one of the uh, law firms I interviewed with was a law firm in Houston. And they were, uh, I think it was an insurance defense firm. And mm -hmm. the, it was a relatively uh, medium-sized firm, about 50. And the guy told me, he goes, I just want you to know, if you come to work for us as an associate attorney, you will uh, be up till one or two in the, every morning work, working hard on memos and briefs and things of that sort. And at the time, I was going through the interview with the FBI. I thought to myself, huh, I don't know. I, I, I don't mind working hard, but it's going to have to be for something different. Yeah. And so flash forward now to this incident that I'm talking about, which is two years later. So we get called out on this Indian reservation. We go out there. The subject was inside. He had a, an assault rifle, and he'd actually fired rounds with the assault rifle at some of the responding police officers. So it was a standoff now trying to get him to come out and give up, which he ultimately did not do. Um, and so we as the FBI, it was in our jurisdiction because it was a federal reservation, and so the eight or ten of us got out there, and I was, because I was a relatively new guy, I was sent to cover the back door. So I laid behind an old broken down uh, car in the backyard of this house, and uh, I could hear the rounds flying over my head. This standoff lasted for about nine hours. And the whole time, the guy was firing rounds through the walls. And so I could hear rounds flying over my head all night long. And about one o'clock in the morning, when I was laying there, hearing rounds fly over my head, it started snowing on us. So I was being covered in snow, being fired at, and I literally laughed to myself because I thought about what that guy said to me in Houston. And I thought, you know, I'm happier here getting shot at and snowed on than I would have been writing a brief for that guy in Houston, Texas. At one o'clock in the morning. At one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So I kind of that was my epiphany, if you will, that you know what, this is the right job for me. It fits my personality. Uh, if I can take these extremes and they still make me smile, then this is where I need to be. And I think from then on, I was I was sold, and I knew I'd stay with the bureau till the end of uh, my career with the bureau. Fantastic. Yeah. That's a great image, actually. And then you just walked away in slow motion <laughs> as there was an explosion as a, as in the background. Exactly. Credit started rolling. Yeah. <laughs> when, if, if, for, those of, for those who are listening who have um, heard about what the day-to-day -day life is like, the, what to expect at Quantico, and they want, to, they want to pursue this a little further. You've talked about some of the skills they need to be developing, some of the things they need to be conscious of about their history and social media and whatnot. What are some tangible things that they can be doing uh, over the next few years to maximize their prospects of being uh, a special agent with the FBI? Uh, uh, obviously, pursue your education. Get your education. And then and grades matter, too. Yeah, grades do matter. Yeah. And then uh, start reaching out to people in the business. Again, I kind of went through all this with a blind eye. Uh, I didn't know anybody in the FBI. I just met that one guy whose dad had been in the FBI. But it doesn't hurt to reach out and start form relationships. So would you suggest something like LinkedIn would be a great way for students possibly, to start? Possibly. Possibly. And reach out to the actual closest FBI office to you. Mm. They may not have an opportunity for you, but most agents are more than happy to sit down with you and talk to you about it. And, and there is an office in Waco. There's an office in Waco. I think it has uh, about four to five agents. Mm -hmm. And so they can go over there and talk to those guys. If they want a road trip, they can come down to Austin. And there's more of us down there. Yeah. And uh, they can talk to somebody there. Uh, and start the process uh, as soon as you can. Again, the minimum age is 23. Most people don't get in until they're uh, in their 30s. Or, I'm sorry, uh, upper 20s, lower 30s. Mm -hmm. 
but it doesn't hurt just like anything else in life to know somebody and to talk to somebody and get a real idea of what to expect uh, as you're coming through. The other thing I would encourage, because we are law enforcement, there are skill sets that are important. I, I wouldn't say go out and learn to shoot. The Bureau will teach you to do those <laughs> type of things. Yeah. But I would say make physical fitness part of your lifestyle. That is an expectation in the Bureau. That is a thing that will uh, help with your stress. That is a thing that will keep you alive oftentimes. Uh, make that part of your life. Because you don't go to Quantico to get fit. No. You're expected to be in good shape fact, when you yeah, get there. If you fail the first test, there's a good chance they'll just walk you out the front door. Yeah. So that's part of the lifestyle. We are, we are kind of uh, molded in a lot of ways after the military. Uh, and the way the processes they use, uh, especially physical fitness tactics and things of that sort. And so that is an expectation. So you need to prepare yourself in life for that stuff. That just doesn't happen suddenly. Yeah. That, that is part of your lifestyle or it's not part of your lifestyle. So you mentioned the similarity with the military. If you're in the military, you, you get moved around quite a lot. Correct. Uh, is that something that you could expect in your life as a special agent? It's a possibility. And again, it depends on what uh, roles you take on in the FBI. Our management program uh, tends to move their managers around a little bit more. Uh, but all of that is kind of volunteer because you hear about an office somewhere else. They have an opening either in management or maybe even an, uh, an area of your specialty. You have a, what they call a collateral duty. For instance, if you were a, a weapons of mass destruction expert, because the Bureau will take you through their classes, and let's say another office, San Diego, needed a weapons of mass destruction coordinator. They would advertise for that. So if you wanted to move out to San Diego, you could put in for that position. So a lot of the moving is voluntary. Uh, but a lot of the agents move a lot. I've known the agents that have moved up 10 plus times in their career. And all that was by choice. I'm sure that helps too with promotions. It does. Yeah. It does. And a lot of those guys that do that, guys and gals that do that, they want to be promoted. But they get to see some pretty wonderful things. You know, we have offices all over the world, uh, even overseas. And those offices are kind of a, 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 a diplomatic in nature. Kind of like a liaison. It, that's exactly yeah. what they are. They're called legal attaches. And so a lot of agents that start to move up through management, that'll be part of their process. They'll, they'll be in other countries, both great countries to be in and countries that are not so great to be in. But then nonetheless, they're over there and they see great work and great opportunities as well. So my, my case, I got to Reno, and uh, the transfer policy changed while I was there. They they'd normally would transfer me to a big office. That changed. And so I stayed in Reno for 23 years because I liked living in Reno. Yeah. And then uh, I married a girl from Texas, and I think by law you have to move back to Texas <laughs> once you married your girlfriend. It's in the Texas. Constitution. It is, yeah. exactly. And so uh, we ended up moving back, and uh, we wanted Austin. And so we got, we got Austin, and so here's kind of the – this is the latter part of my career now will be spent here in Austin. So my moves weren't as many. I did some traveling because of the job, but my moves weren't as many as other agents, but it, it fit my it fit what I chose to do with my FBI career. That's fantastic. Well, look, this has been tremendously helpful, and I hope, uh, I hope our listeners have found it so as well. Uh, if you have any further follow-up questions on the back of this, feel free to email those directly to me at prelaw at baylor.edu and be happy to uh, follow those up with you. And Eddie, thanks so much for your time. This has been uh, a, a real honor. Thank you so much for your My time. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. If after hearing our interview today with Special Agent Duffer, uh, the FBI is something that you'd like to explore some more, it is worth checking out the internship program. Now, it's called the Honors Internship Program, and it's a 10-week paid internship that is open to both undergraduate and graduate students. Now, during the internship itself, you would explore a number of careers that are available at the Bureau, and you'd be based at either the DC headquarters or at one of the numerous field offices across the country, remembering that we actually have a field office here in Waco. The internship uh, window generally closes in October, uh, so bear in mind that you do need to be planning ahead and thinking about what you want to do over the summer and early fall in anticipation of the following summer. Now, there are some criteria. You do need to be a US citizen. You must be a currently enrolled undergraduate or graduate student. And as you would assume, this is a fairly competitive program. And so you're required to have a minimum cumulative GPA of 
But the internship itself is actually available to freshman students right on through to graduate students. If, however, you're applying as a freshman, just bear in mind that you won't have any grades from your college career at that point. And so your application is going to be based on a combination of academic indicators from your high school career. In addition to those criteria, you're also going to have to be able to pass a government clearance background check so you can, so you can uh, obtain a top security, top secret security clearance. And that can take some time, which is frequently why these applications close um, in the fall rather than in the spring. Now, there is no requirement that you be a particular academic discipline. The FBI is specifically looking for um, an employment base that is from a diverse backgrounds, uh, is from diverse backgrounds, but also diverse academically. So some of the majors that have featured in previous internship intakes include accounting, business, English, finance, uh, something like film even, uh, foreign languages, human resources, IT, journalism, uh, law, PR, uh, and visual arts. But please also remember that STEM students, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics students, they're also uh, encouraged to apply. If you'd like to find out some more information about the internship program, then I'd encourage you to go to fbijobs.gov to find out more information. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week on Bears, the Bar, and Beyond.